Well, good morning. As you see on the screen behind you, you can open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. We've been spending the last couple of weeks, and we will be studying the next couple of weeks in the book of Jonah. So I'd invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 2 this morning. It's page 774 in the Pew Bible that you'll find it in front of you. It's good to see each of you here this morning. Again, you're invited back this evening. It wasn't mentioned before, but we do have child care that's going to be available tonight. We're trying to make our meetings as accessible as possible. So if you're coming with little ones, know that we do have child care available. As well, uh, if you're sitting in your seat this morning, which you are, uh, you can also say a, a quiet thanks to yourself or pat someone on the back a little bit later. Last night at about 930 Uh, I had Henry Hutzel calling around trying to figure out how we get our plow through here so that you could park. And then this morning, I found the abominable snowman, otherwise known as Gary Crosby, out there shoveling like crazy, clearing so that we could walk through. So thank you to both of you. for serving us in that way. There's a lot of things that happen around here that most of us just don't know about. Um, So thank you for each of you that serve uh, in that kind of way. Uh, Jonah chapter 2. It's a a smaller book, usually found on two, possibly three pages if you've got larger print. Uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. So hopefully you found it by now. If Jonah were a hit TV program and we are into our next episode, it would start like this. Previously on Jonah. Jonah is God's prophet. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, not friends of Israel, and tell them that God is aware of their sin. Essentially, he's going to be dealing with them. Now, this doesn't sound like a great idea to Jonah. So instead of obeying God, Jonah flees in the opposite direction away from Nineveh, geographically, and what he believes to be also the presence of the Lord. So he jumps on a boat, he gets on the boat, they're on their way, and God sends about a great storm upon the sea. Now the sailors on the boat know this isn't a good kind of storm. This is the kind of storm that kills you. So they're all praying to anything that they can think of. Their God, this God, that God, didn't matter what, you pray to whatever you can to, because we're about done. They're all praying except one guy in the boat. Who's that? Jonah. Why isn't he praying? Because he knows it's his fault. So he's there, knows it's his fault, and he tells them, listen, this is my fault. Chuck me overboard, and things will be okay. Now, if somebody told you that, obviously there'd be some issues. There were some hesitancies. A few things happened. There are some hesitancies. But eventually, over he goes. Storm stops. Sailors are saved. Jonah begins to sink. Jonah finds himself submerged in the water, heading to the bottom of the ocean. The sea will be his grave. Then what the Bible describes as a great fish comes along and swallows Jonah whole. Now, We don't know if it's a great fish, some sort of large fish that we haven't seen before, or or a whale. If you're thinking about those kinds of things, stop. It's not the point of the story. Jonah gets swallowed, and as miraculously as he is swallowed, he survives for three days. And it's at this point we pick up the story of of Jonah crying out to God. So as has been our practice, please stand with me as I read our passage for this morning. 
Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated as we pray together. Our Father, we will be spending time in your word to us this morning. By your spirit, would you open our ears to hear the words that you would have us hear? Would you equip our hands and our hearts and our feet to go to the places that you are calling us to go? Whether it's in our ability to worship you or to be obedient to you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we do now? What do we take from this? We come to church, we want to hear a lesson. What's the lesson we learned from Jonah's prayer? So here's the story, right? Jonah disobeys God, gets thrown in the water. There's a big storm. There's trouble. Jonah ends up in the sea. Why? He ends up there where God is going to save him. God is going to save him. Why? Because God has something specific for Jonah to do. The lesson we get from all of this, from the, from the prayer that we read today is, you can't run from God's will for your life. Is that true? Well, in some sense, yes. In the sense that you can't stop God from accomplishing what he wants, yes, this is true. In Genesis, we read about Joseph uh, when he's talking to his brothers after they had finished selling him into slavery and he's gone through all kinds of stuff. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Uh, Peter, at the time of Pentecost, uh, when he's speaking, he's speaking to the Pharisees and he says, and I quote, you handed Jesus over by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified. Essentially, again, what you intended for evil, God intended for for good. These weren't your plans, these are God's plans, and those cannot be thwarted. Is that the point of this? No. Is it something that we can point to and say, hey, this is a truth that we know about God, and we can look at Jonah and say, this is an example of this truth about God? Yes. But place yourself as Joe or, let's say, Joanne Israelite of 2,800 years ago. You're sitting back and you're hearing Jonah read to you for the first time. Is this what you're supposed to hear? I would argue no. First pitch, ball one. Second pitch, Jonah disobeys God. 
God causes a storm upon the sea. Jonah ends up in the water. It's through this time in the water and his time in the belly of the fish where God disciplines him. Why? Because God disciplines his children. We know this to be true. He disciplines the ones that he loves. So the lesson we learn from this is, just like a parent that disciplines their children, God disciplines those who are, in, who are his in order to bring them into repentance. It's not about wrath. It's about redirection towards God's good and holy purposes. Because ultimately, God's purposes are good and they're perfect and they will bring an ultimate good to God's people and glory to God's name. Are those things true? Yes, they are true. In the Old Testament, we read repeatedly that God is asking people, he's bringing them into discipline, the Israelites, so that they might turn from their sin and, and focus back on what God would call them towards. In the New Testament, we read specifically in Hebrews, it says, God disciplines us for our own good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Is this true? Yes, it's true. Is this the point of this? No. Could we take this idea of God disciplining those whom he loves and look at Jonah as an example of this? Yes. But if you're Joe, or let's say Joanne Israelite of 2,800 years ago, sitting back hearing the book of Jonah read to you, is that the point of this? No, it's not. Ball two, third pitch. So Jonah is given a direction by God. He doesn't listen, goes the other way. God causes a storm to come upon the sea. Jonah ends up in the sea. And what's going to happen? Jonah thinks he's going to die. I mean, this is the end for Jonah. He's sinking. And out of a lost sense of desperation, he cries out to God, save me. And God saves him. Because God is all about saving those things which are lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. God saves those things which are lost. The lesson we learn is this. Listen, we all go through times in our lives when the weight of the world is bearing down on us. When we, are fe- when we feel like we are plummeting to the place where the mountains reach their origin and the weeds of the sea are wrapped around us and we're about done. And it's in those darkest of moments, whether it be by our own doing or someone else's, that if we call out to God, he will save us from our calamity. Is this true? Well, in a sense, yes, it is true. Is that true in a physical sense? Sometimes. Is it true in a financial sense? Sometimes. Is it true as it relates to how we deal with our family or or other relationships, sometimes? Is it true in a salvific sense, meaning our sin has been brought before us and we call out to God as we know in the name of Christ and we can be saved? Is that true? Scriptures tell us always, full stop, it's always true. In fact, there's a a verse that's recorded in the Old Testament as well. It's echoed in the New, uh, in Joel And it says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But is that kind of salvation the salvation that we're talking about here? 
No. Could we talk about that kind of salvation and say, hey, Jonah's kind of an example of that. We can look to that and we can learn from this. Sure. But if you're Joe or, say, Joanne Israelite, sitting back 2,800 years ago, listening to this book being read for the very first time, is that what you're supposed to get from this? You see where I'm going? No. All three. Now, I know you didn't come here this morning to hear three different ways of why a red pen isn't blue. You want to know, tell me why the pen is blue. So we're going to get there. This is my second time actually preaching through this specific passage. Uh, If you've got a really good memory, you'll know that I preached this five years ago right here. Now I'm five years older and at least six months wiser, so hopefully we'll we'll get it right this time. Yes, we can extrapolate that through this, that God's will and his purposes are good and perfect, and he will bring about what he wants to. Yes, we can talk about God's discipline for his children. Yes, we can talk about the truth of the salvation for those who call upon the name of the Lord. But that's not where we're going to land today. And so peeling away all of those different things that you may have heard over time, Sunday school lessons, things that you've read, sermons you've heard online, uh, daily bread devotionals, all of these kinds of things which give us good things that we can learn true things about God, we're going to peel these things away and try to hear this through the ears of Joe and Joanne Israelite of 2,800 years ago. So Jonah's prayer tells those sitting in both ancient Israel and those of us here today, it tells us this. The right response to being saved from the sin in our own heart is to worship and be obedient. The right response to being saved from the sin in our own heart is to worship God and be obedient to his word. We're going to work our way there this morning, but I want you to see exactly where we're heading. Look down to chapter 2, verse 9. Look to what it says. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice worship to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Obedience. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, Jonah proclaimed this because he was well aware that sin equaled death. Our sin equals our death. My sin equals my death. Your sin equals your death. And this isn't a figurative death, like, I'm so tired, I could die. Or, I was laughing so hard, I thought I was going to die. Or, if I leave that pile of clothes beside our bed one more time, I think Barb is going to kill me. It's not that kind of figurative death. Although the last one... (laughs) It's not figurative. This is literal. Our sin literally equals our physical and spiritual death. Jonah knew this. In fact, if you look back to verse 12 of chapter 1, you should be able to either just flip back a page or look up a bit. He says that the whole thing is his fault. And because of that, he was going to die. What does he say? He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. But he also knew that he had been removed from God's sustaining sight. I mean, he was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. I mean, that's what he thought in his head. He thought, I can go that way. God's over here. And if I just go far enough that way, then whew, 
the temperatures turn down a bit. But his disobedience in some way just knew some level of separation there that I think in, in some way we can all, we can all appreciate. Uh, look to 2 verse 4 of our passage today. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I again look upon your holy temple? In your Bible, it probably says, yet shall I look. The translation there of the word yet actually provides us with the opportunity to ask a question, and it keeps the whole structure of a psalm, which is what we have here, together. In a psalm, if you look at one, it'll say there's an issue that is at play. There is some crisis that has happened. There is a crying out to God. God answers, and then there's worship. And so when we ask the question, how shall I look again upon your holy temple, it seems to flow with everything that's going on. How am I going to be saved from this? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And no one is free from it. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. No one is free from it. Just after Barbara and I uh, were married, we weren't married, I think, even a year yet. We were living in Thailand at the time, and it wasn't too long after the big uh, bird flu pandemic that had swept across the globe. Uh, now, things had, had cleared up in that part since then, and so as we're traveling around, we're actually in one of the bird markets where they know this whole thing kind of pew, started, the epicenter. Yeah, maybe not so smart in retrospect, but we were there. Uh, this pandemic... Uh, had the possibility of killing what they suspect to be about 150 million people if it had really got going. They know for certain that 140 million birds actually were intentionally killed or died because of this H1N1 stream that went across. Uh, scientists spend endless hours and we fund endless studies to figure out how do we manage these viruses so that a pandemic does not occur and we all die because of this stuff. And yet there's a pandemic at play that no scientist has a solution for. And that's sin. Sin is the greatest pandemic that has or will ever face our humanity. But thankfully, the scriptures also tell us that God is merciful. His plans are perfect. His person just. And that God saves us in spite of ourselves. Uh, Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still God's enemies, Christ was sent to live and die on our behalf. And the salvation that we boast isn't ours, but it comes from God. Uh, we read this together just a few minutes ago. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we who are saved, you and I, we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in Christ and claim ourselves to be an example of his mercy. Think to Jonah, sinking, 
to his death. We know the end of it. We know that he gets out. You think he might have felt like an object of God's mercy at that point? There's a few other things at play there that I know Pastor James is going to pick up on later on. But the Apostle Paul essentially says the same thing. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So the putrid stench, which is our sin, is covered over by the righteousness of Christ, such that the response of a pagan sailor or that of a saintly parishioner is to be one and the same. Why? Because as verse 9 tells us, salvation belongs to who? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his. The God of heaven, the creator of the land and the sea, the one who controls the waves and billows that pass over, whose ordained purposes are perfect and good and holy and right. It is to him whom salvation belongs. In fact, humanly speaking, as we think about worship and obedience, these are really the, the two, only the two outward kind of things that you and I are able to pick up on that, that tell us if someone has in fact repented of sin, has in fact been changed by God's spirit. See, they begin to worship God. They begin to praise his name and give testimony to his goodness. And they turn from the things that they were once accustomed to towards the things of God. In fact, if we look back to the end of chapter 1 and verse 16, again, look there. The sailors whose impending doom was previously tied to Jonah's, what did they do when they saw God's hand save them? Chapter 1, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows. They worshiped through sacrifice and declared their obedience through vows. Does this sound familiar? Who else did this? God's prophet. Look to verse 9 of chapter 2. Jonah says, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, What I have vowed, I will pay. Why? Because just as the sailors had been saved from the ravages of the sea, so too had Jonah been saved from the sin that had been ravaging his heart. I think in some way we all know that type of disobedience, don't we? And it's that type of disobedience that each one of us is saved from in Christ. Their response, these pagan sailors, their response was the exact same as God's prophet because they had both been saved from the same thing, the sin in their heart. And so worship and obedience followed. 
Now, maybe you're looking at this prayer as we've read it together, or you've been reading it over the weeks to become familiar with it, and you're asking yourself the question, where does Jonah actually repent? Where does he actually say, you know what, God, I'm sorry, my fault. Where does he say that? I mean, we all know talk is cheap, right? But we don't even see that. Where do we see that? In fact, it's true that that there is no explicit phrase of repentance for disobeying God that we can find in Jonah as a whole, let alone this passage. But what is repentance? Let's ask that question. What is repentance? Aside from the part where we know we blew it, and we, we acknowledge that, repentance is ultimately, we can ultimately recognize it when we see someone turn from their one way, which is wrong, and turn towards the other way, which is right. With respect to God, it's turning away from our sin towards the things of God. In fact, this turning of oneself is a language that we hear throughout the scriptures. On both sides of the cross, this is true. In the Old Testament, we hear, we hear written in Ezekiel, Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, he's preaching to the onlookers and he lets them know. He says this in Acts 3, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So we're going to turn away from our sin and we are going to turn towards the Lord. A heart that has been saved is worshipful, it is obedient, and we see this in the turning of our person. Uh, We can think of a lot of different ways that this works out, and it's not to say that we're going to be perfect at it. If you're someone that, uh, let's say, that is struggling with integrity in your business, and you recognize that as a sin, you're turning from fudging the numbers to being honest. If you're someone that's struggling with looking at pornography, you're going to take this and you're going to stop it and you're going to turn towards the things of God. If there are marital issues, you are going to turn from your areas of stubbornness and you're going to work towards the way God would have you work out your marriage together. If you are disobedient as a child, you're going to turn and become obedient to your parents. You see, everything for which there is a sin, there can be a turning towards God. In a very real way, uh, when I was an intern at the Metropolitan Bible Church in Ottawa, I would have been in my early 20s at the time, I was walking with another intern. There was this really, really gross pizza place that was just down the corner, but it was really cheap, and we really did not have a lot of money at the time, as Barbara and I's $1.99 dates would attest to. And so at lunch, sometimes Zach and I, we'd get out and we'd, we'd go down and grab a slice of pizza together. Now, the church at the time, it was situated in a fairly, um, we'll say, seedy area of downtown Ottawa. There's all sorts of stores and establishments there that would be wise not to attend. So we're walking down towards the pizza place as we normally do, and then this essentially flatbed truck is driving beside us. But the, the trailer part is see-through. It's, it's got plexiglass on the side. And Ottawa was preparing at that time for the gay pride parade. 
Now, inside this trailer were all forms of debauchery that you could imagine. And immediately, Zach and I, as we're walking, we see this, we quite, we physically turned, and I remember throwing myself into this doorway and just waiting for this thing to pass well out of sight. I remember the doorway because someone had peed in the doorway, and it smelled. (laughs) It was better that I should stand in this urine-soaked piece of cement and stare at a wall than turn myself towards sin. So in this case, we know from Jonah that ultimately he turns from his position of disobedience towards a position of obedience and eventually going to Nineveh. So when we repent and know God's forgiveness, we know that our heart turns away from the things of this world and towards the things of God. When God saves us, as we know to be the case through Christ, our hearts turn to worship and they turn to obedience. Now that's not to say we're going to be perfect at it. We know that we won't be. And where we fall short, God's grace is just that. It's grace. Romans 6 tells us that where our trespasses increase, so does God's grace. When we are in Christ, sin does not win. But know this, if you are here today and your heart has no desire to speak of God's goodness or to be obedient to God's word, then I think it's a fair challenge to you from the passage that we have, from the response of pagan sailors to ask yourself if in fact you are a follower of Christ or if you are still someone that is skirting salvation and maybe even just playing church. So whether pagan or prophet, the right response to being saved from the sin in your own heart is to worship God and be obedient to his word. So how does this work in our own lives? I gave you kind of a a real-time example that I had many years ago, but there are two ways, and I would say that there are two sides to the same coin. If you're going to have one, most likely you'll have the other. Firstly, worship. Training the things of our minds and of our mouths towards that which will bring God glory and edify his church. That means going about our work and life in a way that demonstrates that we don't worship our own self-interest, but the one that saved our soul. Secondly, obedience. That's taking seriously the things which God has revealed to us in his word and putting them into practice. Now, this means us actually knowing what God said in his word, right? So you actually have to read your Bible. Now, for those of you who have, in this early start of the year, picked up a Bible reading plan, keep at it. If you find yourself, you've already fallen off the horse once, get on again. It's okay. You can catch up. Barbara and I have committed together to reading through the New Testament once. Our lives are nuts. We're going to do that this year. That's our goal. I don't know where you are on that journey, but you want to be somewhere along that road. And so we demonstrate our changed heart by turning from our sin and setting our sights on the faithfulness of God's word. So ultimately, 
being obedient is an act of worship, and we worship God when we are obedient. You see? Now, being faithful in these two areas, let me tell you, doesn't mean that you're going to come out smelling great. Uh, You'll see what I mean. Just look to verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. God gave word, and the fish barfed him out. This is not a cuddly scenario. Jonah is covered in fish puke and most likely had some health issues that probably, you know, maybe lingered for a few days after that. But he's alive, right? He's been saved. And being saved from the sin and rebellion in our heart does not mean that we are free from the consequences of our sin. The reality is that there are earthly consequences that often outlive or follow after our time of repentance. We can say, we are sorry, God. I I have wronged you and I have wronged others. Forgive me. We can receive that forgiveness. But there are consequences, consequences which come along with our sin that carry with us. And then it's God's sustaining grace that will sustain us. But as the sin in our own heart is revealed and as we are forgiven, in spite of ourselves, our right response is to worship God and live in obedience to his word. We see it from the pagan sailors. We see it from God's prophet. And we should see it in the saintly parishioners we have around us. By God's spirit, may we do that together. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we acknowledge that On our own, we would sink to the depth of our own sin. And that sin would destroy us. We acknowledge that on our own, we are helpless and we are tangled in all of the things that look to ensnare us, all the evil of this world. But by your grace, you have sent Christ to live and to die and to be raised to new life so that we might be raised to new life. And so it is in his name today that we pray that you equip us by your spirit to turn from sin and to turn towards the things that you have revealed to be good and true and holy and just and right in your word. We throw ourselves upon your mercy, upon your grace, and we give you our worship and our obedience in return. In Jesus' name, amen.